I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts, TV. And this week, we'll finish our look at the last two sections of Netflix's wrongful conviction series, The Innocence Files. Then, a take on our latest guilty pleasure, HBO's romantic thriller, Run. Joining me to get that done and more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Your beard is looking very full, Kevin. You know, I, I made a shaving mistake <laughs> <laughs> over here with the clippers. Yeah. And I went a little too, you know, like this, you get like a gouge. Yeah. So now I had to thin out everything here. So oh. it's, it, this is the sound of my chin. Yes. And that's, you know, still good, but my, my cheeks are a little thinner. Yeah, you still look like a mountain man. I would never have been able to tell. There's just too much hair. Okay. <laughs> also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, certified cat lady, and intuitive ride-along podcast host, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. Hello, Rebecca. That's right. I am branching out and trying something new with my friend Susan the Intuitive. I'm going to learn to be intuitive, too. What is the name of the new podcast that you guys just launched? It is called Everyday Intuition. And um, it's where I'm going to learn and everybody else along for the ride is going to learn to sort of tap into their own natural intuition, sort of gut instinct on things. I got to tell you, great name for a podcast. And the cover art is so lovely. The photo of you guys, you even look properly socially distanced. I was really impressed. (laughs) Uh, Thank you. Actually, that was taken last year when I wrote an article about my friend Susan, who's in the podcast with me. And uh, Um, Some people were like sending us notes already being like, you're too close together. And I'm like, (laughs) that was a year ago. But we do sort of look socially distanced as well. Yeah, it's really good. I feel I feel like we're in Genesis. Yeah. And you got like Phil Collins, like Goff doing his own thing. And then you got Mike and the Mechanics over here. (laughs) Yeah. Peter That's a Gabriel really and, old reference. And then they all come back together. I thought you were going to say like we're Adam and Eve or something. Yes. No. (laughs) Kevin, you and I are Adam and Eve. And these are like, these are our offspring. 
Yeah, we need bigger fig leaves. Yeah, yeah. Which one of us committed the original sin? <laughs> <My son>. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. Uh, <laughs> bite it, Rebecca. <laughs> and finally with us, our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, our Patreon book club host, and the host of the hit podcast, Strange Arrivals, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. How are you doing? How's your hit podcasting career going? It is. Uh, it, it seems to be going fine. He's the Peter Gay of the group <laughs> I'm, I'm holed up in my house I I don't know if I can walk out in public without being uh-huh. mobbed by adoring fans yeah. it's I'm gonna wow. say Toby's actually the Don Henley yes and uh what? don't and, don't start bringing this evil <laughs> stuff on me <laughs> Laura is Joe Walsh okay I like the it Genesis thing Fry. better because I I really you know, I'm that team, band never broke up. I'm Team Peter Gabriel. You're yeah. Team Phil Collins, right? Yeah, yeah. Really? You're wrong. <laughs> hey, I, yeah, I'm I'm a hundred percent Peter Gabriel. <laughs> and just when you thought it was going all right, can I be Stevie Nicks? And thought you, I was and wrong, you can but be I thought Christine it was McVie. Right. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> There's that. So I guess that makes me Lindsay Buckingham. <laughs> What's up with that? What's, What's up with that? <laughs> Toby's McFleetwood. <laughs> oh, What's going on here? He hates Fleetwood Mac, remember? Because he's weird. So what I want to do is just let people know what's going on in our Patreon after show. Mm -hmm. This week, we are going to be talking about the In the Dark team's new project, Coronavirus and the Delta. Uh, In the episode that dropped today, right before we're taping this, we all listened to it. We're just going to talk about the fact that they're doing that project, what we think about it, and sort of the way they're covering it. It's really interesting, something only that team can do well. We're going to talk about that in the Patreon after show. Plus, I'm going to ask Toby about the new released UFO videos from the Air Force and what he thinks of them. And we're going to talk about some other stuff, too. Kevin, what else is on our Patreon right now that people need to look out for? Toby's Deep Dive Book Club podcast dropped last week, and the, the book was Suspect. Oh, the Richard Jewell book. Yeah, and uh, we're getting ready in the next couple of weeks. Toby's going to be doing Catch and Kill. Yes. And it's going to be doing it for the first time. We're going to be doing it on Crowdcast. Video. So it'll be video. So Toby will be uh, greeting his guests and our Crime Writers on Nation supporters mm. are going to be able to take part and chat and video and Can be I all part of that part, podcast. Like, part of the audience and get called on and stuff? He doesn't want, he doesn't care about you. I really want to. Toby, who's going to be joining you on, the, on that podcast? Uh, scheduled to appear are um, Ryan Haas. Mm who is a producer for uh, Bundyville. Yep. Mm-hmm. And also uh, Lauren Bright Pacheco, oh, who did Murder in Oregon. And then uh, Janet Varney. Who is like kind of a celebrity, Janet Varney. Yeah, from the JV yes. Club. And- Comedian. Comedian and actor. Mm-hmm. And she's Cora in The Legends of Cora, and is actually the first person I think I've ever mentioned to my kids where they're like, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Janet Varney's a big get. She's kind of a big deal. She's yeah. kind of a big deal. Yeah, we love yeah. her. Yeah. Remember when we first saw her on At Midnight? Yeah. <laughs> All those years ago? Say, who would thought we would be palsies with her? I know. I know. Talking about books on DMs. Anyway, I'm really excited about that, and I will be in the audience, so Toby, please call on me. Please, 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 please. Okay. You love yeah, if you want to watch yeah. me, like, stressing about technology in front of a live audience. <laughs> I might just push him off the video and then just, like, star in it myself. All right. So, Kevin, before we move on, mm-hmm. do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Of course. Uh, we have th- hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of patron saints. But this week, our Patreon patron saints 
are Lee Bardugo and Mae Connolly. Bless you. <laughs> all right. So you can check out all of our content, including Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker, Married with Podcast, The Book Club, and of course, the Crime Writers on After Show. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash partners, partners in, in Crime, crime media. media. Well, let's do like they do in the thing. Ready? Partners in Crime, crime Media. media. <laughs> can I ask a quick question? Sure. Yeah. Is this the very famous author, Lee Bardugo? You know what? I don't know, Kevin. We should look into that. If it's you, Lee. Thank you. And welcome to our Patreon family. Uh, I don't want to say you might be a bigger deal than Janet Varney, but you might be. I don't really know. (laughs) Why were you lurking in the shadows all this time? (laughs) Will the real Slim Shady please stand up? By the way, whoever this Lee Bardugo is, is like right now, like fantastically Googling, like who famous author do I have the same name? No, my my daughter is like maybe the biggest Lee Bardugo fan. Huh? On the East Coast, yeah. Wow. So apparently she just trumped Janet Varney in your house. <laughs> I don't know. It's, Sorry, Janet. You'll always be number one in my hat. It's a, it's a star-studded uh, episode today. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of star-studded episodes, should we actually get the episode started this week? Yeah. All right. Let's do it. Let's talk about the feeling that you have walking out for the first time. I'm, if I'm completely honest, I was scared. Nervous. We're going to start by wrapping up our look at Netflix's nine episode The Innocence Files. In part two, which comprises episodes four through six, we explore the trouble with eyewitness testimony. One installment deals with cross-racial identification. Another tells the story of an L.A. teen accused of a drive-by shooting in which unsure witnesses were guided to his mugshot by cops. I picked a one person. He's like, no, it's not him. You know, he's in jail. I picked another picture. He's like, no, it couldn't be him. When I came upon a picture of Frank, who I did recognize from around Linwood, he was like, yeah, it could be him. The final standalone segments look at instances of prosecutorial misconduct. They include shows on witness intimidation, evidence suppression, and an eyewitness sketch of a rapist who wore a mask. Detective Olsen asked me who I thought the composite looks like. I told him, I think it looks like Phil Collins. And Austin told me that he thought the composite looks just like me. While each of the remaining episodes are more like standalone documentaries, taken as a whole, The Innocence Files is the most comprehensive look at the issue of wrongful convictions in the United States and the systems that create them. Now, spoiler alert, we will be talking about plot points from the final six episodes of The Innocence Files. So if you want to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes. Now, Lara, you don't think The Innocence Files is a binge watch. Can you tell me why? Yeah, so I think for me, because each of the episodes is, you know, it's an hour or more long, and I feel like each of the cases sort of stands on their own. Um, but if if you're watching them back to back, you sort of, they, they don't sort of um, stand out on the merits of each case to me anymore, because it's just, it's, it's very long. And I feel like um, just the length of the episodes and the detail of the cases, it's sort of for me, like took away the impact and the rage that I might have been feeling about an individual case because it was like on to the next case. And I really felt like if this season had been broken up or if these had been like individual documentaries on cases, uh, that would have had more of an impact just in the way that you're watching them. I think if you're watching maybe like one of these episodes a week, 
that might be a good way to watch them to actually be able to digest the information in a way that you you know you're suitably outraged and also understanding these issues in the criminal justice system that are you know resulting in these wrongful convictions Toby, you had some similar feedback about the way this documentary rolled out and kind of the length and the format. And I don't want to, like, get too heavy on format here, but I do think it's important. I mean, this is an Innocence Project Mm -hmm. approved, you know, kind of collaboration. They got three very famous award winning directors to helm each three, uh, you know, each of the three sections, even though they didn't necessarily direct all of the episodes themselves. Toby, what did you think of the way this rolled out as a single project? Should it have been done differently? Well, you know, I agree with Laura in that I think it would be more impactful if you weren't like watching one after the other, after the other, after the other, because, you know, they're, they're different. The cases are different enough, it, you know, and each one's sort of compelling in its own its own way. But there is a certain sameness to them. And there's also a certain sameness to the feel of the way they're directed. There's some differences, but they're not, you know, you don't feel like they're, they're, there's like wild changes in between the episodes. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it would be much better off, you know, spreading them out. If I had those sort of in my feed and if there wasn't anything else I was interested in watching and just knew I could pop on one of those if that was what I was in the mood for. I mean, they're, they're quality mm-hmm. and um, they're, they're well done and the stories are interesting, but it's just, there. it's, it's a lot. Yeah. It's, it's a whole lot. And you know, the, the issues are quite similar. So I, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think Laura explained it pretty much perfectly. To me, there's one standout episode in these final six that to me is very strong. And that's episode seven, the Chester Holman episode. The relationship between police and prosecutors in Philadelphia was so tight. As soon as they arrest somebody like Mr. Holman, the detectives meet in advance and have a sense of what the story is that they're looking for. This may be, by the way, I may feel that way because I knew about the case going in because Undisclosed... This is the Philadelphia-based Yes, because Undisclosed did a a series on Chester Holman, and I know a lot of the work they did actually informed Mm -hmm. this episode, even though they didn't end up appearing in it, I guess, you know, but I I do know I'm familiar with Celeste Trusty's work and this case. And I think the episode, the other reason it stands out for me, Kevin, is because it's the Alex Gibney episode. He directed it. It was filmed in real time, during Mm -hmm. the Conviction Integrity Unit's investigation of whether or not this conviction was right. Mm -hmm. We actually see that unit working together. He has that ride-along scene with them where Mm -hmm. they try to recreate. What did you think of this episode? And I I think it had a higher level of suspense than some of the other episodes. It's a a good one to point out. And actually, that's a good point. If, If I have a critique of this, and I have a couple, but that's one, which is that in these stories, there's not a lot of suspense because for almost all of the ones that we're looking at now... We know the people are exonerated and that they're out of jail. And this is the one that um, we are still following the process. And it's left up in the air. There are a lot of these documentaries where, you know, we get the sense that the system is not going to work. I'm thinking specifically of The Staircase, hmm. the original, where the fact that they are they do not prevail is very powerful. And, uh, yeah, that's one thing that sets us apart. The, and I, I'm actually pretty glad the way that we broke this up which was to look at part one, which were those three episodes. Part one was so different all, texturally, right? Yeah. yeah. But but yeah, but it's all the same story. And you have the same outrage is directed at the same person and character and system 
in those first three. Well, the first three were about bite marks. There was two marks. and then one. But and yeah. Dr. West. We went yeah. on so much about Dr. West. Exactly. He's the glue mm. that holds those first three episodes together and what we feel emotionally about that. And here we've got now, uh, out of these six episodes, we've got five different cases that are, I'm not, I'm not going to paraphrase Dr. West and say, if you've seen one wrongful conviction case, you've seen them all, because you haven't. But it is a lot of, okay, yeah, this, yeah, same same thing. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I'm upset. Yeah. Yes, I'm upset again. That's the only case that's a little different. That's the only the episode that's a little different. Case. The whole, well, the case. police malfeasance in Philadelphia is extraordinary. And the episode yeah. touches on it, but it doesn't get into all of it. But they do talk about how, you know, they decided up front that he was the suspect mm-hmm. with, you know, fairly good reason. Similar car, similar license plate. But then, you know, locked him in a room. Uh, they would beat up suspects. And these same two cops would apparently write police, you know, write statements mm-hmm. for suspects routinely and then just get the suspects to sign them. Like they were all in the same handwriting all the time. Um, but the other thing about the Chester Holman case that sticks out is the circumstances around his overturned conviction, which were political. Right. Larry Krasner, the new DA, uh, ran on a platform of looking at these bad convictions and reforming the criminal justice system. And Toby, as you point out, he is a good guy and he's seen as the hero, but it's kind of a low bar, right? Yeah, well, and there's a couple other people who are, are kind of fall into this, but I, it's so unusual for us to run into a, a prosecutor who thinks it's bad to put innocent people in jail or to have <laughs> innocent people in jail and makes that a priority because I, it, it seems like everything that we run into, uh, which may not be a completely representative sample, but is these prosecutors doing everything in their power to keep people who are quite likely innocent hmm. still in prison. And so again, I mean I mean I think, you know, I, I, I knew of Larry Krasner before watching this episode. And I think one of the one of the things that, that people must think about is what if he was the prosecutor in Baltimore hmm. or, you know, in, in Wisconsin, or if you had somebody who was willing to take sort of a sober look at these cases and considered it a victory for the prosecutor's office if they found people who were innocent in prison and let them go. Mm. It, it, it seems weird that that, which seems like a fairly simple moral uh, standpoint, is so unusual and like sort of a cause for celebration in a lot of ways. Just shows sort of, I don't know, it's not even that people are really corrupt, but the way the system is kind of set up discourages that kind of introspection, I think. Maybe on either side. I mean, maybe defense lawyers are all jacked up that they got guilty guys off, but that doesn't seem to be as much of a problem from what we've seen. Yeah, I I think Toby's right about we don't really often see prosecutors that take this seriously. And I'd say probably about, you know, roughly half of these cases that we see in this series, they do and some don't. I mean, you know, uh, all good you know, reluctantly shook the hand of the guy that he sent off to prison hmm. and was later exonerated. I, li- I want to highlight the uh, DA in the Frankie Carrillo case. Mm-hmm. First of all, the one who tried, the, the female DA, who tried him at the original trial. Yep. Who we see all along sort of defending the, the case as it was originally tried. And at the end of the interviews, in the end of our story, in this two-part episode, she was very emotional hmm. when... You know, and we see, and we see tape of her on the stand testifying. She realizes what happened. 
that the cops framed him for the, the case. The co- that it was, yeah, that it was yeah. that it was a bad case. Mm-hmm. That she got bad stuff, and she tried somebody based on what she thought was good information. Right. I believed it with all my heart. Years later, I told Mr. Sarfikam that it's not trickery. Why would somebody whose dad is dead say that he now didn't see it? So that's what made me open my heart to the possibility that maybe he didn't see it. And I really like, the, you know, in the appeals case, the DA who was there arguing on behalf of the state. And I do not begrudge prosecutors and solicitors who represent the state in trying to preserve convictions. That's their job. They should do that. But they should be open to the idea that maybe it's not a good conviction. And this this older DA, who looks like he was probably born in a bow tie, <laughs> wears it in the tub, had a really great closing argument, you know, talking about why Frank, the problems with Frankie's case, you know, the strength of the government's case, but says as an officer of the court, the defense has met that burden. And then I did the unexpected and told the judge that I had an ethical and legal responsibility to ask him to grant the petition. The court finds that the petitioner has sustained his burden of proof by a preponderance of the evidence. The conviction of petitioner Francisco Carrillo Jr. is set aside. With probably the second most dramatic moment of this whole it was, series. It was. And I thought it was great. That was also an interesting case because... The system works. The system takes too long to work. Absolutely. So but the Frankie Carrillo case is interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, one being that he had an outstanding alibi. Yeah. You know, he had an outstanding alibi. His well, father was his alibi. And his father's like alibi was like... You could corroborate his father's alibi in many, many ways. And then he also had... Um, that hippie lawyer who came, who like met him for two seconds and was like, oh, he didn't do it. And yeah. I'm like, how did she know he didn't do it? Well, not as great an alibi as the guy who f- phoned his girlfriend. Yes. And the phone records. Yes. And then there was, what sure. kind of violation, people? A Brady, Brady violation. violation. Oh, is, is that the one in Texas? Yes. yes. Laura, what'd you think about that? Uh, that was the one that made me so freaking angry. That was the guy who had the records in his garage, right? Yes. Yeah. This was the Alfred uh, Dwayne Brown case. Yes. So that was the case where I actually felt a lot of rage um, as I was watching because I was like, okay, like you said, like the dentist episodes were the ones where I felt the most rage because I had like the singular villain to focus on. But in the Brown case in Texas, you know, not only does this guy have records in his garage that were never turned over, nothing happens to him after that. I'm like, oh, okay, so you just get to like go on with your life now. And I mean, I, I will say that the state's attorney or the prosecutor in that case you know, I, I admired how she got up and like said, yeah, we don't have enough evidence to retry this case and we're not going to pursue it. But the police union also was just like, oh, well, you know, I was like, ah, oh. I was getting very angry at him. I think that that was the thing that was frustrating watching this is you'd see these cases where, you know, people were exonerated and, you know, it's, it's pretty clear that this is a wrongful conviction. But then. On the flip side, when there was like outright police, I won't say corruption, but misconduct, you know, misconduct when, in cases where there was like police misconduct and things that were very obvious, nothing happens on the other side. And so I was like, you know, that just sort of shows the scales of justice here, even when you're exonerated are not even. Well, that seems to be like a huge theme here, not just the adversarial justice system, but that there's no consequences for misconduct in the justice system, apparently, over and over and over again. This is a big theme that we've talked about lots of times. I mean, 
it seems like the only people who have consequences are like self-determined consequences, like Ken Kratz, who's just like a shitty person. So like, <laughs> you know, like they, they do it to themselves or Len Kaczynski. Right. These guys, yeah, these guys can't stop, but they, they do it to themselves. Like the protections prosecutors should receive ought to cover errors and omissions. You yeah. Know, you should have the ability, you know, working on behalf of the government to make mistakes, but not to act improperly. Right. Because the immunity covers all sorts of ills. Well, it's sort of like in the Frankie Carrillo case, that prosecutor who I do think was probably had a million cases. This is the woman. Yes, but she right. probably had, like, you know, if she was in a system where, like, they just get what they she get. She made errors. Yeah. But she didn't intentionally, you know, she didn't, she as didn't far as I recall. She didn't wake up that morning thinking, like, yeah, I'm going to screw somebody. I don't recall, yeah. you know, look, we've looked at a lot of things. I don't recall taking actions that violated his constitutional rights right. explicitly. Yeah. Unlike some of these other cases that yeah. we saw, yeah. prosecutorial immunity as a matter of you know law ought to cover that kind of a thing, yeah. but not willful violations mm. uh, of things that you know send somebody up the river. Yeah. Especially when you can prove later that they did it. Inappropriate side note, Frankie yeah. Carrillo, very handsome. Yes Super no? hot. I, I got to agree with the ladies. <laughs> Easy yeah. on the eyes. Even I was Chester like, Holman, too. Very handsome. The guy's too good looking to be in jail. Very inappropriate. Sorry. I know that that's not part of this conversation, but it had to be said Did out Did he not seem like super well-adjusted? Well, I, he had, a, he, I mean, he had a lot scene, of weight. He had a lot of weight that he was carrying with him, but yeah. he got a big settlement, which also helps. Yeah. I mean, I, it's not, I'm not saying that money is, not, is, not, is no compensation for yeah. what happened to him. But, you know, it does. You have somebody who then gets some resources and can get help and, like, actually be a voice versus somebody who can't, like we saw in the earlier episodes. It makes a difference. And that's mm-hmm. why restitution should be high in these instances. Can, can I just ask what was going on with that disguise with the witness in his case? Oh, I don't that know. That was a really, didn't you know, that was an elaborate disguise, Deirdre <laughs> the witness, who had like, it was like Spider-Man or something with sunglasses. Yeah. I was like, wow, that is an elaborate disguise. <laughs> yeah, a lot of strange details in there. Um, I do want to talk about episode six, which brings up a very interesting issue which we've i believe have covered something before that dealt with this which this is the, the rape case the cross-racial yeah. identification issue there's an incredible montage of tape in that episode where a series of people including some of them are like reporters mm-hmm. and some of them are you know in law enforcement and some of them are witnesses who just talk about whether or not these two black suspects look alike i mean they don't they don't look they're not close at all there there is a resemblance between the two men Complexion is different. The most notable to me is the nose. The hairlines aren't dissimilar. I found this super interesting, and it's certainly something that I think is worthy of conversation, especially when you have reasonable people in the show, like just sort of unable to do it. And it, and I think you know the data shows that it happens too when uh, people of color look at you know white people like the same kind of. Yeah, mistakes mm-hmm. happen. It's just not accounted for. Toby, what did you think about that thread in, in that episode, the cross-racial identification and the problems with it? Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, what I get out of all of these things is once you're a defendant, you're kind of screwed because like everybody's going to be wrong about everything. <laughs> it basically seems like. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know if I have anything very like insightful or whatever to say other than we know so much now about biases and what kinds of evidence we can trust. But I, I don't think you can get it all into a courtroom. So you end up having things like this, which are known issues, but the people who are on the jury don't necessarily know it. Right. So 
it's like nice to expose, but at what point are you able to somehow convey that information to the jury in a way that they find convincing? Particularly in these cases when you have like a public defender and, a, and an indigent defendant and you know, you're not going to be bringing in like these experts to kind of testify about this. This white guy may not be able to have the greatest identification. So, I mean, that's that's kind of the way I feel about it. Like a lot of this stuff is you, you find out all these interesting things, but how does that actually affect the way justice kind of works for the people who are most vulnerable in the system. Hmm. One of the things that I thought it was interesting about that case, that was the Thomas Hainsworth case. The victim was Janet. Um, it was a 1984 assault, and there was a series of assaults there, um, including, uh, you know, there was a serial rapist who called himself the Black Ninja. So basically, this other guy was convicted of multiple rapes. Thomas Hainsworth named him. You know, there was a DNA connection. Hainsworth mm-hmm. is told, like, he had to do an Alfred plea and say he was guilty, and he didn't want to. But then this very unlikely band of people get together to help exonerate him, including this Tea Party guy, uh, Ken Cuccinelli, Michael Herring, the lawyer. And they sort of are able to bring that um, left wing and right wing sort of pro-criminal justice faction together. Mm-hmm. I thought that was fascinating. And it's another case in which politics sort of has a hand in doing the right thing when you wish it wouldn't, right? It's like, it's tough when it's like politics. I don't know. It's, it's, I, think, I think it was one of the times where we had political figures being apolitical. Yeah. And looking at, at, at you know, more of, is this an actual innocence case? Yes. And, you know, and I, you know, back to the cross-racial identification thing. I was completely fascinated by that because as a viewer, I look at it and all of a sudden, like sort of halfway through telling the story, they put you to the test right. and ask you as a viewer, do these two people look alike? And you want and as, that you want to think that you would not make a mistake. Right. And it be yeah. explained, this is brain science. It's not about the, about the quality of your character. If you're a white person and you look at these two these two black individuals and you say, yeah, they look similar to me, and then you show the same two people to to a a, a black person like they did in this in this uh, documentary, they can say, no, these they see all the difference. No, they're very distinctive, and yeah, it's it has nothing to do with whether or not you are being discriminatory. It has everything to do with the brains, our lizard brains, about people of different races, and that's fine. It doesn't mean that white people can never identify black people and black people can never identify Asians in crimes or stuff. But it is worth noting that the the subtle differences can be hard to distinguish. And when it comes down to the only evidence you have against the defendant is a cross racial identification. Then when there's other evidence, it's a little more dicey. It's not dicey. It means that they shouldn't use it because it's not reliable, especially when there's other evidence that he didn't do it. That's what it means. (laughs) Laura, you love hero defense attorneys. How many of them in these show uh, did you want to get married to? (laughs) Um, I didn't want to get married to any of them but there was some that really stood out I mean I think that was I liked you know the flip side of this where we're seeing the hero defense attorneys the attorney who took Chester Holman's case right from the start um, in Texas we have Brian the public defender he was another of my favorites I liked he had the bullshit meter he knew and I was like I love the bullshit meter (laughs) Um, but you know we see him at church and at his dinner table with his family and then later when he's hugging his client when he's been exonerated um it was just 
those were the things I kind of wish, you know, we'd seen a little bit more of. There was kind of a formula to this whole series where, you know, each each episode had all the right people and all the right information. But I liked when we saw those really human moments. And, you know, that case you were just talking about, that rape case, uh, the memory rape case. At the end of that, we see the victim now going out and doing talks. Janet with, and Thomas, yeah. yeah. The wrongfully accused. The wrongfully accused. Um, you, we see the victim going out doing talks with the, the the man who's been exonerated. And, you know, they've both come to terms with their own role and, and both sides. And he's, you know, not harboring ill will towards her. And she's, you know, out there kind of talking about the case. And I liked seeing that side of this, sort of the what happens after part of the case. Yeah, me too. I liked, well, I mean, one of my takeaways from it about witnesses is that, you know, there are civilians here, and when they get caught up in this, whether they're victims, whether they're witnesses to a crime, they want to do the right thing, and they think they are, you know, and they're sincere in what they're doing, whether they're right on or whether they're mistaken. But when they're nudged in the wrong direction by prosecutors or detectives, they end up becoming tools. And what we, we look back at these exonerations that you see those people are feel terribly remorseful for what they did mm. to somebody who who didn't deserve it. Yeah. They have the right to expect justice, but when they find out that they played a, a part in making in not delivering that, yeah. unlike what we've seen from most of the prosecutors and detectives who are like, no, I don't care what the DNA says. I think we still got the right guy. <laughs> can't. I can't even. With yeah. That. Well, like that last case where they, they the victim and the perpetrator were wearing masks for most of the time that the rape was happening. And she did a composite that was 60% sure this was the person who raped her. And that was what they went on. I was yeah. like, what? Yeah. But she was doing it in good faith. She didn't wake up that morning thinking, how can I screw somebody? No, Unlike no, those no, Philadelphia no. cops who seem to wake up every morning thinking, how can I screw somebody? Mm. The yeah. fastest way to get this done is just screw somebody. fastest way to get this done is just to write their confession and then beat them up until they sign <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah. It's a really good uh, a really good system. All right, well, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out parts two and three of The Innocence Files on Netflix? This is episodes four through nine of a very lengthy <laughs> nine-part series. Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. What do you think of the series overall and these parts two and three? Um, so I think that the first three episodes of this whole series for me were the strongest, um, the ones that I was able to really feel the most absorbed in. The second part, I would say they're all very well done and the cases are really important cases. And I would suggest that you, you know, don't sit down and binge this. Pick one episode a week to watch. I think that's the way to watch this, to get the full impact of the stories and the cases and what it means about the justice system. Because they're, they're very compelling stories. It's just... You know, you need to take them in little bites. Toy Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for The Innocence Files on Netflix, especially the parts we talked about this evening. Uh, I, I basically agree with what Laura said, except I would just say I don't think you even have to do one a week. They're quality little packages that you can pop on whenever you're in the mood for something like that. But binging them, I think, is doesn't give each individual one its due because they're just not enough different to watch back to back to back to back to back. But, you know, I, you can't really argue with their quality or their storytelling. And at the end, I mean, I think you, you do have to have, you know, feel good about the work that the Innocence Project is doing. I mean, that that was certainly something that you at least I kind of came away with. Not that I, I 
had many doubts about it, but it it does make a compelling case for for them, and I can see why the Innocence Project would be interested in making something like this. Kevin Flint. Yeah, I'm I'm a thumbs up on the entire thing. I I think if you look at episodes four and five as a couplet, and then uh, the other episodes, I mean, I would individually give them five thumbs up. Everybody's right. I think the problem with the series is just sort of the way it's packaged and arranged, and maybe this is a quibble, but Thematically, it was great that they put these into three separate bins, and I'm almost wondering if by putting them all together, whether it's a little more like one of those crazy midnight buffet places where over there is Italian and over here is Chinese food, mm. and and it just seemed like, yeah, it has everything. Wouldn't it be better if there were like three separate seasons yeah. and they came out separated? That's a presentation quibble. Like as far as the content, a lot of them are, you know, an hour plus, it's a length of a documentary yeah. in and of itself. They're wonderful things to watch, but right, I don't. I think maybe you get more out of it if you spread them out a bit. So thumbs up. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that this would have been a better project rolled out in three seasons, even if they came out a month apart. Mm-hmm. You know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I do think there are some episodes that are super standouts. I, I think the first two episodes of the series are fantastic. Episode three is strong. Episode seven of this series, the Alex Gibney episode, I found to be really, really strong, the Chester Holman episode. Mm -hmm. It had the suspense, like I said, because it was sort of shot in real time. And even as somebody who knew the outcome of the case, I found myself sort of thrilled watching the process unfold in real time. There's an incredible scene sort of near the conclusion of that episode that is so moving in its imperfectness. And you could tell, like, it's imperfect because it was in real time. And to me, that just adds a specialness to it. So, yeah, I mean, for me, it's an overall thumbs up for the series. I agree with my fellow castmates here that I maybe would have rolled it out differently. But, yeah, thumbs up for The Innocence Files on Netflix. Do you ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today. I'm what you might call very good at hide and seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Moving on. Yep. And I will see you tonight. I love you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. It starts with a simple one-word text. Run. 
Then Ruby Richardson makes an impulsive dash across the country to catch a random train in New York. This is unforgivable. I know. Really? People forgive all sorts, don't they? Not this. Who does this? Oh, my God. What will I say? Whether in the text was a prearranged sign from her college boyfriend, Billy Johnson. He, too, has left his entire life behind to run away with Ruby. And please don't bullshit me that your life is so brilliantly perfect, because if it was, you wouldn't have texted Run, and you wouldn't be sitting on this train. You texted Run back. Yeah. That's what set everything off, okay? So you're blaming other people for choices that you've made like you always do. So like back I always the fuck do. Off. Jesus Christ, you didn't have to call. Maybe that was a mistake. In HBO's new romantic comedy thriller, Run, starring Emmy winner Merritt Weaver and Donald Gleason, we're left to wonder where the reunited couple are going and what they're leaving behind. It's also probably, as one critic said, the horniest show on television. (laughs) Now, we are going to be talking about plot points for Run, so to remain spoiler-free, get our review at the estimated time code in our show notes, and you can just come back later after you've watched all the horniness for yourself. (laughs) Laura Bricker, how much do we still love Merritt Weaver after seeing her in Run? Would you prefer a window or an aisle? Uh, How long is the flight? It's five hours. Aisle, then. Perfect. Well, or, or a window seat. Um, indecisive. Window. No, aisle. Should we just stay with the middle seat? Well, that's the only one that I don't want. You don't want it. Don't ask me any question. Just give me a goddamn ticket. I love her so much. What do you love about her? Describe the qualities about Merritt Weaver that make her so lovable. You know what it is? I think she's just so relatable when you watch her. Like, whatever role she's in, I really authentically believe that she is the person that she is portraying. The way that she is able to get into a character and play that character is just super relatable. And it's just something that I think I would watch anything that she was in just because there's just something about watching her that makes you feel like it's somebody that you know almost. And in and in this case, you know, this whole show to me is just like the ultimate pandemic escape because like quite honestly, who is not fantasizing about just hopping on a train and running the hell out of where you are right now? Just being with people. <laughs> yeah. I just want to like give you my take on why I love Merritt Weaver so much. Okay? All right. She has this delivery that in a moment can go from being, you know, sort of smooth and solid and like everyone's mom or next door neighbor or like the lady at yoga, as we say, she's going to go try out her fancy yoga mat, to being coquettish and sort of baby voiced, to being deceptive and sly. And there's almost no vocal change. It's just about she has just a quality where she can just embody the vixen. Mm-hmm. And the, I mean, it's really it's it's really something. She's a great performer, and right? And you put this performance side by side with her character in Unbelievable. Unbelievable, yeah. And the way she played that. I'm thinking back to the time she was in the car, mm-hmm. just driving out to wherever it was. She started singing that country chicken music song, song yeah. chicken song. And then when she just stops singing it, the way she sort of brings it in that, just by not singing, it brought back sort of the whole... Uh, drama and the, you know the urgency of that whole story in that moment, and that they do sort of very similar thing here and run something very small, just reaching out pinkies, yeah, to touch. I mean, I, I well, think it's, it's horny, Kevin. 
I, I, it's also, <laughs> but it's small things that's, yeah. that say a lot. Yeah, yeah I mean, like uh, the the hairspray scene really is what did it for me. Who can't relate as a woman to like sort of freshening up with some hairspray from below. Now, Toby, as much as we all love Merritt Weaver, you are not quite buying Donald Gleason as the love interest. Is it the actor or the character and the believability of Merritt Weaver dumping her entire life and her children for this guy. Thoughts, Toby Ball. I don't find him to be tremendously appealing, I guess. The actor or the character? Well, I don't really know the actor. What? You don't think you do, but he's been in lots of stuff that you have definitely seen. Really? He's a Weasley. Oh, is he? <laughs> He's General Hux in, in the latest Star Wars series. He didn't series. see that, but he did see the Harry Potter that. movies. Ex Machia. He seems, like, he yeah, seems I mean. like the wacky best man in a rom-com or something, mm. you know? Yep. Is that why she looks so sad? I think that's probably just her resting face. And then this is her lifeline here, and today that shows sexual arousal. But the big news is that she meets the guy again soon. So that's lovely for her. Anyway, he just seems... He's like a games player and, you know, he kind of snivels a fair amount and feels sorry for himself. And the scene on the train when she's like, I'm going to fuck the next guy who walks out of that bathroom. And he's like, "Okay, you're on. And then that good looking guy walks out and she's like, let's go back to my room. And he's he was an Amtrak 10, though. (laughs) Yeah. He's like, you know, we don't have to do anything. And I'm like. Oh my God, this is like the exact opposite of this guy who she like left everything for. Like this guy's not playing games. Like he's being respectful. He's like, seems like he's kind of cool. It's like, if you're running away from your husband, just hang out with this guy. He seems a lot cooler. (laughs) So anyway, I I don't, I I get the feeling I may be the outlier on this, on this show. Back to the inliers then, Kevin, you like, you like the concept, right? I love the concept. What? I think it's a great, well, the idea of, first of all, we don't really know well, where the idea for this code comes from, the idea that they have sort of this prearranged signal that they're just going to pick up and leave everything is romantic, but also troubling in a certain way. You know, I, I, I think just, just like some sort of urgency to it. I don't know where it's going, right? I mean, physically, right? The show is called Run. So we have to keep this journey going, right? It can't be episode five. Well, we're just going to settle down and have a house. That's not what this is about. So I find that it's just it's just how are we going to keep this sort of urgency going throughout the entire series? They have to have a destination. Yeah. And it's unclear sort of to us right now. Hopefully it's clear to the writers right. where this is going in order to maintain the momentum of a really great start. I mean, for not for nothing, but she did fly from California to New York and seems to be on a train back to California again. So I don't I'm very confused about that. I think she's going to be running from Kalinda pretty soon. Um, <laughs> and but I don't know Kalinda's actual name in the show, but I love Kalinda. That's so Fiona, that's I, right? Wait, who's who's Kalinda? She was in that was her name in the um, when she was the uh, in-house legal detective in The Good Wife. Oh, God. Uh. See, I didn't watch The Good Wife. So I know her as Alice and Fiona. That's who we're talking about. Who? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Who, who Ruby meets in the department store and turns out to actually be the nefarious assistant, maybe, of Billy. There's more going on. Billy's got a bag of cash. Fiona's showing up. Fiona seems a little stalkerish. There's a little craziness going on. Maybe they were like bank robbers in college. I don't know. But something exciting is going to happen. Laura, didn't you feel as a woman so much tension in the fact that Merritt Weaver was wearing the same clothes <laughs> for so oh. long? And like all she just had, wanted to change her underwear. No, but she had nothing. Yes. Like every woman watching this would know. 
<laughs> that having nothing is not okay the way it is for a man. It's just not okay, right? To me, it added it's like, like when we all went to Nashville and you know Chicago and you lost all your underwear. No, it was kind of like when Toby didn't bring any shirts to Chicago. Oh, that's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I know because like guys. even remember like not on like a funny, but like when I knew my son was going to the hospital in Boston and I was probably going to be in Boston for a few days, I like ran home from our local hospital, threw a bunch of stuff in a bag because I didn't want it. I was like. Oh, I don't want to be in the same clothes for three days, you know. Mm. And I'm, I'm you would never at, be able to handle a text that says "run." And I'm like, oh my, I well, I might not. I'm not that spontaneous. But I was like, well, she's wearing the same damn jeans. Yep. Yeah. And I'm like, what's in that bag? I don't know. So I did. I did feel some. I'm like, is she gonna shower? Maybe <laughs> he did tell her to take a bubble bath when yeah. he went out. And but she's like, "Do I she? smell?" And I was like, "Yeah, you probably do, girl. You probably do. You both probably <laughs> do." Now, Toby. Uh, I know that you think a lot about plotting and this series seems to be a lot about, you know, revealing information slowly, both to the audience and characters revealing it to each other slowly, which means there's sort of layers of deception that we sort of have to cope with as an audience. What do you think of the way this series is handling those layers of deception and the way information is being unfolded to us? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> you know, in these kinds of things, I, I think there's, as a writer, there's kind of an honest way of going about it and a less honest way of going about it. And it just has to do with, are you being honest about the way things would play out or are you making them play out in a kind of unrealistic way simply to keep people from having information about what's going on? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think this does both. Although I think the honest stuff is less important. And an example I would just give is of, is of the whole Alice Fiona subplot where, you know, you don't really know. Like at first you kind of, at least I thought that, she was maybe the jilted girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you see her, she shows up and, and there's that ridiculous scene where Merritt Weaver gets attacked by her dress. Are you stuck? I'm so stuck. Look, I think it goes like this. <laughs> come, come. Are you sure? Yeah. yeah. Just let me, okay? Oh, oh, are my tits out? Yeah, but you got great tits. So don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, by the way, a hundred percent something that has happened to almost every woman in a dressing room at some point um, without a savior to come and unzip them. By the way, let, lest you think that doesn't happen, that shit happens. Toby, that, that's fine. That happened with my Latote stuff. And I was like, and I was trapped. I was trapped in something. And I came and like I was in my bedroom and I was like, help, help. And I couldn't get out of one of the Latote shirts. <laughs> we don't have any campaigns in this podcast, do we, Kevin? Who knows? Yeah, we're keeping that in. I, uh, <laughs> the giant spinning wheel of commerce might fall on it with two. We don't know. Everything's on shuffle. Hey, it's a free ad for them. If so, Why anyway, not? go ahead, Toby. So anyway, her little her little arc seems honest to me. Yeah. Like like mm-hmm. every little piece that you're get you're getting from her makes sense with the narrative. What doesn't seem honest to me is the way that the two main characters, they won't talk about anything directly that has any bearing on any of the mysteries. Mm. So they either ignore it or they kind of talk in circles around it. And it's necessary to keep the mystery. But to me, it rings false. Yeah. And I think it's it's not so much that it's lazy writing, you know, and I've, and I've written like scenes like that, particularly at the beginning of books, which I've then 
scrapped because they're hard. They're hard. They're, it's hard to write a scene like that where people are kind of talking around the main subject that you want to keep hidden, much less try and write now three episodes that are mainly just these two people talking or not hooking up <laughs> and still have it being this really sort of elliptical thing. And so I, I don't really like this show for that very reason. Mm. That I don't think it plays very honestly with its audience. And I think the suspense is all derived from sort of an intentional withholding of information that I think normally would be out there, but they they just, they, they can't put it out there because then there wouldn't be any suspense. Now, Toby, I saw buried in your notes something that delighted me that I just want to get you to say on the podcast out loud. Uh, one of the people, creators behind this show is Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who created Fleabag, which relies on a lot of the same kinds of slow re- revealing of information and audience deception. I think it's done brilliantly. And I saw this little note where you said, I love Fleabag. Can I just get you to say out loud on this podcast that you love Fleabag, Toby Ball? I do. I do love Fleabag. <laughs> I thought Fleabag was awesome, which is why when I knew that she was attached to this, I was psyched to see it. Yeah. But I, I just, I don't feel this is nearly as as well written as Fleabag Fleabag was. is almost as close to perfectly written as anything that I've ever seen. Kevin, what were you going to say? I want to talk about a troubling aspect. I do too. I'm not sure the show knows yet how to handle its female lead having walked out on it, her children. Yep. I've run away from my kids! What? I've run away with an ex who I haven't seen in forever! And we've got this room at the Brock Hotel, and I left my kids with my husband, and, and they're my babies, and I miss them so much. But I just needed to see. I needed to see. You just left them for a guy? Don't, don't, don't judge me. I know, I'm awful. But am I awful? See, I don't know what I want. And it's sexist as hell. Yep. But there's what you do in the show, and there's knowing what the audience is going to like. Right. If it's the father walking out on the kids, the writers could go harder on the character because the audience somewhat gives the dad a pass. Sexist, I know. Yes, you're so woke, Kevin. I'm so I'm woke. So impressed. But, but you know what I'm saying? They do. I mean, they do a couple of little things. He sees her C-section scar, and is taking which is a great back. little thing. Yeah. yeah. Seeing the kids' photo, he's taken aback. It's a real boner shrinker for him. It's a boner shrinker for him. <laughs> exactly. I don't know how they square that circle. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I totally agree with you. Because you I- still want Merritt Weaver's character, Ruby, to be likable. You want to root for her. But here's the, this is yeah. the needle that you thread. If they can make somebody, I mean, yeah. I think she's inherently likable for a few yeah. reasons. One is because she's Merritt Weaver, which really fucking helps. Yeah. That is the needle I think they need to thread here. It's a tough needle to thread because audiences are sexist and because writers are inherently sexist. I'm curious to how they thread it to. It's troubling that she he has reacted to her that way and that there's been no question about him. And when it comes down to him, it's like his scandal just seems relatively minor. Is, yeah. Laura, what were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say, I mean, I, I, yeah, there is that sort of between the two of them, but... I don't know. I think that there is more to Ruby's husband than we are <laughs> Lawrence realizing. Is his name? Lawrence. Well, yeah. <laughs> of his photoshopped Facebook phone. <laughs> Lawrence turns off her credit cards within one day and changes the answering machine message to this crazy message. I'm totally. like, clearly he's, he's, he's going to become a, like a crazy villain in this because well, we're going to see is, him. Yeah. 
I mean, don't you think you might like give her a few days before you go off the deep end like that? And and his response was just sort of, di- I mean, I won't say it was disproportionate because obviously she just took off after yoga class, but it, it showed a side to him that leads me to believe there's more to this story. I mean, I think what the four of us writers ought to be thinking about is sort of where is this story going and what's the ending? A lot of stories are like, for example... Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. Yes, it is. It's a family movie because the plot is essentially how is he going to get back together with his wife? This whole terrorist thing at Christmas are the, is the complication, right? So the question is, is this a family movie? Hmm. Because they've already gone together. So I feel like in the end where this is going is that they will return to their lives somewhat wiser and more appreciative. That'd be boring. Something went on the way because then what is the ending? They go through all this and they're together. They're together now. I'm wondering where it's going to go. But here's the thing. You can be both a- I could be wrong. I'm you just can saying. be both a good person and also want to leave your wife, your husband and kids. You can be. I mean, that's, that's just a yeah, fact. Yeah, for life. I'm talking about we're making and, and shit up for I know. HBO. I think I know. teased, though, that there is some- ba- I mean, and I like how they're sort of parceling out this backstory. Like, even on her wedding day- like she texted him run. So mm-hmm. I think there's, I don't know. I, I'm curious to see, like you said, where it goes. And, you know, it can't be hopefully a totally depressing ending because right now this for me is like a pretty light, easy view. So I'm hoping <laughs> it goes somewhere fun, but I guess we'll see. Maybe it's just self-indulgent, selfish ennui. What were you going to say, Toby? No, I was just going to say in the, in the husband's defense. Yes, defend the husband. Like when she was like, oh, you know, I can't remember. It's like she went to Sedona or something, but she was at mm-hmm. some spa or yoga retreat. And he's like, oh, okay, well, that's kind of weird. And then he hears that she's actually on a train to Chicago. Next stop, Cleveland. <laughs> Next stop, Cleveland. And I think that was what kind of drove him. was like, okay, not only did you disappear like at the drop of a hat, but now you're lying to me like in this like completely insane way about what's going on. And now I don't have my speakers installed in he my house. super lame. He looked like a lame-o. He's the dude I, from Mad looked, Men, right? Yeah. And he's Glow. Boring. And Glow, yes, he's also a Glow. He also <laughs> plays the jilted husband in Glow. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, he did the cheating. Yeah. Oh, God, I don't know. The whole thing. <laughs> like, I don't really give a shit about how this how this ends, quite honestly. <laughs> oh, Toby, no. <laughs> All right, that seems like a good time. To do what we do, let's let our listeners know, should they check out one of the horniest shows on TV? Not my line, but I like it. Run on HBO. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Run? I'm going to say thumbs up. I mean, it's uh, this is a fun show. I think it was not what I was expecting. It's definitely got some elements of like romantic comedy, some elements of mystery, some elements of... There could be some fatal attraction stuff going on. I don't know. Um, but it's got a great cast. I love Merritt Weaver. And I would say, give it a try. Toy Ball, what about you? Thumbs down or thumbs down for Run from HBO? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, it's it's disappointing. It, and, you know, I and maybe this is like the fiction writer's lament or something, but I, I just don't feel like it, it plays fairly with the audience. Mm. You know, quite honestly, I don't I don't find either of the characters super appealing. Like I kind of like Merritt Weaver just because she's Merritt Weaver, but her the actual character she plays, I don't find like super appealing. I kind of went in with the expectation that I was going to like it and it was going to be like sort of a lighthearted romp. And now I'm just like, I was watching the end. I was like, okay, we got 10 more minutes and then I can put this thing to rest. Mm. So that's where I am. Kevin Flynn. I'm a thumbs up. That leaves four fingers to rub it out in the bathroom (laughs) on the train. (laughs) Everybody seems to do. Sorry, a little bit of a spoiler there. Um, I said it was a horny show. It is. It totally is. (laughs) Look, I like it. I mean, um, 
I think it's a very unique romantic comedy. The characters are fun. I definitely want to know more about them. We know what the setup is, some prearranged signal to run away and leave their lives behind. How did that get set up? You know, I wanted to know how did they leave that and what was that all about and where are they going? I have a lot of questions. I think so far Run is an interesting journey and I'm along until it gets boring. Yeah. Me too. It's not as good as Fleabag. I'm just going to say it because, as I said in the I, I think spoiler part of the review, uh, Fleabag is maybe the most perfectly written short-run television show I've ever seen. Yeah. But it is, it's I, fun. I think we may be overestimating Phoebe Judge uh, Waller's involvement Phoebe in Waller, the- Judge, yes. Waller Judge, yeah. Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Oh, well, yeah. What did I call you? Phoebe, Phoebe Waller-Judge. Phoebe, Phoebe Judge, Judge. Like criminal. It's a-, <laughs> it's a different person. But whatever. Anyway, uh, I, you know what? It's fun. It's escapist. It's HBO, so it's beautifully shot. And of course, there's lots of fun little details and some tension built in where you don't expect it. And who doesn't not want to wait at home for their husband's speakers to be installed? I know I don't. That's very relatable to me. So for that alone, I'm giving Run a thumbs up. I may change my mind later in the season, but I'm liking it so far. And that's how I feel about it. Do you ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries, plus napkins, plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this, plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus essential plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of the week. week. It's a headline we never thought we'd see. Train crashes into boat. (laughs) We're not sure we have all the details correct, as usual, because we had to translate the story from its original Norwegian. What we can tell is that last week, a train with just four passengers was traveling through a road crossing two hours south of Oslo. Stuck on the track was a boat being towed on a trailer. In what may be the first of its kind accident, the locomotive ran into the bow rider and smashed it to bits. No one was hurt, and Norwegian officials are investigating the circumstances around the crash. Our guess is this bizarre accident will be recreated for the next farmer's insurance commercial. (laughs) They know a thing or two because they've seen a thing or two. Just not a train versus boat collision. Panel, this is an unfortunate but unlikely meeting. Who knows what can happen these days? What other unlikely meeting may happen soon? Laura Bricker, what do you think? 
Um, there's been a lot of unlikely meetings in my house this week. I'm playing a new game called What Can I Make with Random Things in Our Liquor Cabinet. Oh. Um, <laughs> unlikely meeting, Jameson and Apricot Brandy. Not so bad. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, Paul, what about you? What unlikely meeting is likely to happen soon? Well, I, I'll, I'll stick with that from real life. I was out on our deck with my son, and we were watching this hawk be dive-bombed by this much smaller bird. Oh, yeah. I've never seen huh. anything like it before. It was I pretty have. wild. It went on. I have. It's, it's, it's when they're protecting their nest, man. They get like oh. real intense about it. It's very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was like a, uh, it was like a dog fight. Um, <laughs> it's like a like dog fight. Like with the planes. <laughs> In which a chihuahua is <laughs> No, not like, like a, not between dogs, like with those, you know. Fighter pilot. The Red Baron. Yeah. <laughs> Kevin oh. Flynn, what do you think? What other unlikely meeting is going to happen soon? I think it's uh, Laura Bricker having high tea with Doug Evans. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't think that's going to happen. But Laura Bricker, instead of meeting Doug Evans, do you want to let us know whether or not you have a cat of the week this week? I have an animal of the week. But first, I would like to quickly shout out to Stuart, who told me that people are using their free time to crochet tiny couches for their cats. (laughs) I saw that. (laughs) And I was like, oh, my God, maybe that's my next hobby. But actually, our animal of the week is a duck. Yeah. So Sarah, our listener, Sarah, submitted Aloe, the baby duck. She was born this morning. It has become an important part of Sarah's life. And so I went on and was checking out Sarah's Twitter feed. So apparently this was a homeschooling project and now there is more ducks than just aloe but aloe was the first and so you can follow the um, lives of the ducklings i know a lot of people are getting ducks right now so kind of a fun new thing and also um that was my nickname in college so i was um what was drawn to this duck huh i had a daisy duck costume that i occasionally used to wear around campus hot Mm. all right laura bricker folks want to reach out to you and solicit photos of you in your daisy duck costume how can they find you on twitter um, it's at Laura Bricker, but somebody stole my costume, so it won't be coming out anytime soon. Toy Ball folks want to reach out to you and ask you if you have any photos of Laura Bricker in her Daisy Duck costume. How can they find you on Twitter? What about me in a Daisy Duck costume? <laughs> what about it? <laughs> at Toby Ball and H. What about you, Kevin? How can folks find you? I'll be wearing my Donald Duck costume, which is a shirt and a hat and no pants. <laughs> like all of your clothes. <laughs> at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reblavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On, and I encourage you very strenuously to join our amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. You can also swing by our regular old Facebook page, by the way. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media, and you will get so much stuff. The Crime Writers On After Show, Mary with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker Podcast, and occasional cocktails with Kevin via video. We had over eight hours of exclusive content this month. I'm very proud of you, yeah. Kevin. Our theme song was performed by the New York Scott Jazz Ensemble and used with permission. Our line editor is the extremely handsome Henry Lavoy. Our social media and newsletter maven is the wonderful Meredith Plunkett. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where our secret text code is run the dishwasher. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. Are you taping this for the outtakes? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ten minutes okay. of Laura trying to fix her audio. This is the after show. when I go up like that, or does it sound the same? Sounds about sound the same. Sounds about the same, but yeah. it looks in the recording like you're a titch louder.
So uh, I'm going to turn my recording volume oh, up a little bit. Oh, now you sound bit. really there loud. Oh, what'd you do? What did you just do? Now you sound oh, normal. Well, I just changed it in Audacity. <laughs> so, so, so does your recording level look okay in Audacity or does it look super it fucking does. loud? It does. It looks normal. No, right. it looks okay. normal in Audacity. Then keep it. All right. Then what we're going to do is we're just going to go around the so, horn one more time. Everybody, and ask everybody what they had for breakfast. (laughs) Laura, Laura, what did you have for breakfast? I had some toast, and then I did yoga with the serial killer guy. Super. (laughs) Toby, what did you have for breakfast? I had a quarter ounce of shrooms, and I washed it down (laughs) with whiskey. (laughs) Partners in Crime Media. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, essential plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.